Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anderson Podcast Series. I'm Brandon Nett. I'm here with my good friend, Sandeep Junjunwala from India. And today we're going to be starting about U.S. startups doing business in India. Welcome, Sandeep. Thanks, Brandon. Good morning, everyone. Okay, today we'll talk a little bit about and review U.S. taxability of foreign operations. Then Sandeep's going to talk about doing business in India. And then we're going to help you understand and discuss some common issues that U.S. companies encounter in India in the early stages. Sandeep, let's get started. So first of all, when we're talking about the U.S. taxability of foreign operations, you can break it down into three general categories. Um, and we see startups do, do a variety of these, uh, depending on their life cycle and needs overseas, uh, particularly in India. First and foremost, many U.S. organizations start off with an unregistered of what we might call an informal activity or presence in the foreign country. And, and this, this works because it's simple um, and, and doesn't require a lot of administration, but, but it can be risky. Uh, risky for, in the fact that you know, the taxability in the foreign jurisdiction is uncertain or subjective, uh, and there's potential risk um, of taxability for income tax, for indirect taxes like VAT or GST, and, and employment taxes for, for the individuals who are, who are working there, whether they're local country or from the US. And then in the US though, you know, this, these activities are fully taxed and any gains or losses would flow through to, to the US return. The next level up is when an organization you know, would register formally and have a registered presence in a foreign jurisdiction, but, but not a subsidiary yet. Uh, this is sometimes called a branch. And you know, this is a little bit more certainty on the foreign tax side, although it can be subjective. Um, it's taxed on the earnings derived from the in-country operations. And, and sometimes there can be a question about what that is if there's intercompany transactions. And again, you know, this is fully taxed in the US um, pass-through type basis on the US return. Um, and, and if there's any cash remittance that comes back, it's generally not taxable though, because it's already been taxed, although there would be a foreign exchange gain or loss. And finally, when you're, when you're a U.S. startup, um, and we see a lot of this in India, and Sandeep's going to talk a little bit about this later, um, you know, we see the formation of a subsidiary or legal entity. And, you know, from a foreign perspective, right, this is just, you know, that entity is taxable on its separate earnings. Um, this is also where transfer pricing considerations really start to become important, especially in India. Um, and from, from a U.S. perspective, you know, interestingly enough, um, you know, post-tax reform, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 2017, you know, essentially all of your foreign operations are all going to essentially be fully taxable in the U.S., uh, regardless of form. However, if you're a C corporation, uh, which many startups in the U.S. are, especially in the venture-backed world, um, they receive a lot of benefits that minimize the impact um, or sometimes eliminate it, depending on how the case may be. And again, um, from, a, from the standpoint of remitting funds back to the U.S., uh, generally not taxable because everything's been taxed. Um, and you know, there's typically not, not a U.S. tax implication, although, again, there's might be a foreign exchange gain of loss. So, so that was, you know, sort of quick and, quick and dirty, fast, furious summary of, of U.S. taxability of foreign operations. I'm sure you, you picked all that up, but, but just wanted to kind of put that out there to set that the context. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, doing business in India. Sandeep? Uh, thanks, Brandon. Let me, you know, first share a quick fact about the startups in India. Um, India today is world's fastest uh, growing startup ecosystem, and we are currently the third largest startup hub in the world, uh, you know, housing close to around 45 uh, unicorns. And now, as far as, uh, you know, 
uh, overview of tax clause is concerned let me just quickly share a quick overview of the compliances that are applicable while doing business in india the first and foremost is that a corporate entity must pay corporate taxes for any income which is earned in india a foreign company uh, is also supposed to pay taxes for the income that is derived from india based sources and accordingly file the return of income in india for every tax year there are certain exclusions uh, you know for categories of income such as royalty or fees for technical services and overall these entities are uh, required to comply with the transfer pricing norms wherever they are applicable equalization levy is applicable on certain digital transactions and the non residents who are carrying on certain specified transactions need to remit equalization levy to the indian government and also furnish an annual statement now in india we also have gst which is equivalent of vat in the us it is applicable on supply of goods and services and a taxpayer or a company is required to file monthly returns and an annual return also under the gst regime uh having said that uh, you know it must be known to all of us here that india is a federal union comprising of around 28 states and 8 union territories so in total around 36 entities uh the states and union territories uh, are further divided into districts and smaller administrative divisions um depending on the form of entities there are other corporate laws which could also be applicable in india on the businesses lastly on the employee law the government has uh, recently notified a uh, uniform labor code to condense the varied employment legislations at central and state level to bring in a very comprehensive legislation this was uh, notified to ensure and simplify the compliances for employers and achieve a better workforce protection these codes are uh, expected to be implemented by 1st of april 2021 right great so obviously you know doing doing business internationally is complicated and in, in you know and in in the US and India do a lot of business together sandeep we work quite a bit together um for serving clients and and so let's let's now talk a little bit about some of the common issues for US companies in India um you know i think we can break it down into into these categories you see ownership structure and local requirements employment law the complex tax system and then transfer taxes and so so starting off sort of in the ownership structure realm you know what what are the local shareholder requirements um you know are are there any local shareholder requirements in india or kind of us company just own 100% outright of an india subsidiary yeah so so brandon to answer that question um, you know unlike few asian countries like malaysia or Indonesia for that matter indian company registration does not require a local shareholder but there is a mandatory requirement of having one resident director on board uh, so wholly owned subsidiary companies with uh, you know with only foreign directors are mainly impacted by this provision of the companies act uh, so in essence no local shareholder requirement but yes need to have one resident director on board okay and who who do companies typically select um you know do they how, how do they usually go about that if they if they're just starting up a presence in india so normally uh, you know the government uh, uh, has streamlined this requirement previously the law required an individual to stay in india for at least 182 days 
in the previous calendar year to qualify as a resident director now currently the law is rationalized and a person who stays in india for at least 182 days during the financial year itself qualifies as a resident director so with with this change uh, you know there is a flexibility for non residents also to act as a director of the indian company without any gestation period and it therefore reduces dependency on external persons uh, so overall if there is any non resident or a foreign citizen uh, if he or she is staying in india for more than 182 days then they are eligible to be appointed as a resident director okay and if, and if companies don't have someone i mean do do advisors like like us and and attorneys can they help them find someone locally yes absolutely so that's that's possible but in case the company wants to uh, send someone from overseas uh, to work uh, in india as a resident director that's also possible and external professionals like attorneys and cpas can also act as a resident director for the company in india okay good so you know one of the things i've seen a lot of and we do a lot of middle market buyout due diligence here in the us of the us companies uh, that have an india presence and we've seen a number of them not all of them but a number of them will you know they'll have a us corporation which is the the ultimate operating business and they'll have an india subsidiary but that india subsidiary is owned directly by the principal shareholder or shareholders um seen that a few times you know is there is there a particular reason for that or or you know should should us companies think about it? is it easier to have individuals own the, the shares versus the versus the corporation any, any thoughts there okay so in india uh, brandon a private limited company can be lawfully formed only when there is a minimum of two persons who are subscribing the shares uh now uh, you know as we all know most of the indian subsidiaries especially the one which are owned by the us corporations uh, the indian subsidiaries are captive entities which operate in india as a offshore unit uh, for the us parent company and therefore they have a very close operational tie up with the parent and the group companies uh, so uh, to retain the complete uh, ownership and control of the indian subsidiary uh, us companies prefer to be the principal shareholder and uh, subscriber of shares in the indian company this is also from a from a quality control perspective it ensures uh, that there is a effective control uh, which is retained by the parent company in the us and uh, you know the with, without having any third party shareholder the business strategy and the trade secrets of the company stay secure within the group so this is more coming from a business and a strategy viewpoint rather than uh, from any tax or uh, local regulatory uh, uh, framework all right interesting Well, turning to employment, you know, one of the things I've observed largely in the U.S. is, you know, you know very rarely we talked about the three kind of basic forms of operating overseas uh, from a U.S. company, and we very rarely see U.S. companies operating in India without an entity or subsidiary. Um, and so, you know, is there a reason? You know, maybe you've got some thoughts or comments on why why typically U.S. companies form legal entities to hire employees versus you know contractors or just having some sort of a registered office. Uh so Brandon the most accepted form of legal entity in India is a PLC uh, which is a private limited company. Uh generally there are no restrictions uh, on the conduct of a business by a PLC in India except under the exchange control regulations where uh, certain segments of business need government approval. Uh 
so us companies who uh, you know enter uh, into india with a long term vision of conducting business generally form a private limited company because it is more stable more mature and a well understood form of entity the other alternative is a llp which is limited liability partnership and the key advantage there is uh, you know in a llp structure there is no dividend distribution tax and there are lesser compliance hassles but having said that the enforcement rights and other legal aspects in a llp structure is still evolving and not yet settled so generally us corporations tend uh, to establish a plc than an llp uh, the other form of business entities could be a branch office or a liaison office or project office all these are temporary uh, you know these are set up for temporary requirements mainly by corporations who are here to test the waters um uh, these three forms of entities can operate only with the prior approval of the central bank in india which is the reserve bank of india and they have very limited scope of conducting business in india uh, so therefore overall uh, you know uh, corporations who come to india with a long term vision of doing business here end up setting up a private limited company than any other form of entity Yeah, and, and what about using contractors? I mean, it doesn't seem like we see a lot of that. Is that could, could that be kind of difficult, or is it just you know administratively much easier to just jump right to an entity? Ah, uh, generally, U.S. corporations engage uh, contractors or agents only for the non-core activities, but for core activities, uh, you know, which which involves working with sensitive information, U.S. companies generally prefer setting up their own subsidiary and hiring employees. agents uh, and contractors as uh, you know we know are third parties and therefore it takes longer time to build trust and loyalty whereas employees being bound by the employment contract provide better control and assurance that the policies of the company would be adhered to so i think this is the basic reason again uh, you know more from a business strategy standpoint us corporations tend to hire more employees than contractors or agents And are there any profit sharing requirements or with respect to India employees? No, I mean unlike uh, European or Latin American uh, countries, uh, the industrial relation laws in India do not mandate any profit sharing with the Indian employees. Uh, the employment law prescribes a payment of minimum salary, uh, you know which also includes something like social security contributions for retirement benefits uh, of employees. uh but but there is no mandate for any profit sharing requirement with respect to india employees okay and what about like turning over the workforce let's say you want to shut things down or or you want to augment your workforce you know i know some european countries it's very hard and you know for, for germany for example you know there's some significant period of time you have to notify people and pay them any anything like that if you wanted to you know change your workforce or or turn people over okay uh so i i would uh, you know give perspective which is uh, forthcoming as well here so currently the retrenchment of employees in private sector is governed by the employment contract itself uh and the employment agreements govern the procedure for layoffs retrenchment or termination of services now as i indicated there is a proposed labor code uh you know which is likely to be implemented from april 1st uh that labor code provides certain conditions for retrenchment of employees Uh, who have been in continuous service for at least one year so there is a requirement of one month no written notice uh, indicating the reasons for retrenchment and there is also a requirement to pay compensation 
which is equivalent to 15 days of average pay for every completed year of service um so while it was easier under the erstwhile regime maybe it will become tougher under the proposed uh, labor code okay interesting yeah so one you know upcoming as a potential kind of one year benchmark um to keep in mind okay well let's let's shift gears here a little bit and talk about the complex tax system i think i think you know it's not not fair to just say india's complex certainly the us is but but let's talk about about gst right this is the indian equivalent of sales tax but but it is more broadly applicable than sales tax in the us india does not have a vat but can you just real real, real high level you know what what is subject to gst pretty, pretty much everything right goods services Yeah, pretty much everything, Brandon. As you said, except for petroleum products, uh, alcoholic drinks, and electricity, pretty much everything uh, you know on the supply of goods and services gets covered. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, like the system in the US, GST is also a consumption tax, which is uh, used uh, in India on the supply of goods and services. It is comprehensive. It is multi-stage, and it is destination-based tax, and pretty much applies on all the goods and services uh, under the sun. So you said destination based, right? So so our our services performed in India for non-US customers or non-India customers, sorry, uh including the US parent are those subject to GST? So uh in most scenarios uh services which are performed in India for non-Indian customers are treated as export of services and they qualify for zero rated supply under the GST law. Uh therefore no GST is levied on such kind of offshore services but if the services are treated as intermediary services like those of brokers or agents those services probably get uh, subject to gst in india okay yeah and and i think we deal with this again a lot in the sort of middle market buyout of, of us startups um you know sometimes there's, there's documentation you need to do and in contractual arrangements to make sure you document that it's an export service so any thoughts on what can be done on the front end to better document mitigate any any potential exposure for your intercompany transactions uh so if you take my two cents brandon on this i think some of the key measures that could be taken uh on the front end to mitigate gst exposure number one uh pre determining the nature of services and applying for advance ruling if required number two uh services should be classified uh, under the appropriate service accounting code or sac as what we say and the gst uh, rate which is applicable on that sac code uh, service accounting code should be uh, correctly considered so take expert advice uh, before the commencement of business to ensure that the provisions of the gst law are duly complied rather than uh, you know getting surprised at the end moment right now exactly all right well shifting gears to income tax now um you know one of the biggest issues we see on this side is is transfer pricing right i mean you could be a us startup in a growth you know or a development stage here or pre revenue or very early stage revenue have no income um on in the US or on a worldwide basis but you know transfer pricing in india uh perspective will typically you know result in a profit uh expectation so maybe you talk a little about that as well as the you know the documentation requirements especially for companies in the early stage i mean do, do they need transfer pricing documentation or, or or can they just sort of swag it and say well we're just going to take 10% markup or 15% markup what what are some thoughts there from early stage companies okay so the companies in india uh, need to maintain a tp study uh, tp study is uh, generally a detailed documentation relating to the international transactions which um, the startups in india may be doing with their related uh, associated enterprises and uh, this is uh, maintained to justify that 
the transactions are carried on uh, at a arm's length basis uh, having said this this documentation is to be maintained and updated on an annual basis only if the aggregate value of international transaction entered by the indian company exceeds 10 million rupees so any company which is below this threshold of uh, 10 million rupee is not mandated to uh, maintain uh, the trust pricing uh, study and the company may need to submit this study on request by the indian revenue authorities at at a later point in time what what's the exchange rate today you know i didn't look um you know 10 million rupees is what about 1. Point, or about 100 dollars it looks like so yeah, so current so, is so, around 75 we can yeah. take that as it so so i mean I think you know it's pretty low threshold, and I think we we tend to ignore that in the U.S. because we you know we have transfer pricing rules and there's documentation requirements, but when when companies are losing money, we just sometimes they just ignore it. Um, and and I'm not saying that's not a reasonable practical you know result that it's not really not with the rules, but but the risk is low. So so what's the profit expectation like? What is the you know the typical markup for admin and back office and, and separately for R and D services? Maybe you could comment on that. What do we typically what, what is India? typically want to see the government in terms of markup for those two types of services okay uh, so uh, before that and uh, uh, every company with uh, international transactions is required to perform a fair analysis to determine the tp benchmark for international transactions and uh, there's a pretty uh, high chance of tp litigation in india if the markups are at uh, low rates Uh, the government uh, in india has prescribed safe harbor markup for certain uh, specified business and companies can avoid tp litigation if they follow that uh, safe harbor markups and now on your question on what those safe harbor markups for admin or back offices it is pretty high close to around 17% and for r and d services it is close to around 24% so you know these are pretty high uh, uh, markups which have been prescribed under the safe harbor uh, rules and uh, this is the reason why probably there is a low level of acceptability by the indian companies to even look at this kind of uh, markups both for admin back offices or for r&d services in india right and those are very high um and and probably higher than market market so and i think most companies don't do that high so i think that's all the more reason why you need to have even if it's a low level having some transfer pricing documentation to to support a lower markup is really important right so Absolutely. okay great so brandon we spoke about india how is the how is the situation in the us when it comes to the key filing requirements for startups yeah no it's a, it's a it's a great question and you know you know we talked again about the three different kind of ways that to do business uh, overseas in some form and and you know just kind of from a high level the the us reporting of foreign operations is quite onerous um any any organization these days that has any sort of formal presence you know if if you're not going to register you're just going to have people running around in in foreign country without without letting the country know you're there it's a little bit simpler but but if you have a branch or or, or an entity there's significant filing requirements uh that are required in the US forms that carry heavy penalties if they're not followed filed um as well as you know with the implications of the US foreign tax credit um can be can be quite complicated in the in the in the foreign tax credit is um you know the 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 US system's attempt to avoid double tax on global income so if you you know in theory if you were to pay tax 
um, in a foreign country. Um, in some forms, it's not available, but many, many forms of learning structures, you can get a, a credit in the U.S. against that same income. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, what has been your experience with the IRS on the availability of foreign tax credit by, uh, you know, some of the U.S. startups who derive business income from India? Yeah, that's a, that's a great follow-on question, right? I mean, you know, we talked about it's 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 this attempt to avoid double tax, but the reality is in the U.S., most startups aren't paying tax, right? They're in the early stages. They're either in a, grow, a, a development stage or a high growth stage. Once they hit, you know, revenue, um, they incur significant losses, and then even after, you know, immediately after that, when they start turning, you know, turning profit, if if they reach that stage, they're using losses. So so in the U.S., until you make money. Um, taxable income, and until you, um, you know, use all of your lost carryovers, you're not, you know, the foreign tax credits are, are useless to you um, because you don't have any tax to offset. Um, and there's complex rules about this. And there, there is, in some cases, if you have a branch, you could carry over to, to subsequent years. Um, but if it's if it's a subsidiary, there's no no ability to carry over. So it's kind of a year by year determination. So that you end up with a situation where you know what we call tax leakage, right, where where you're paying you know, tax in India, um, even though on a, on a worldwide basis, there's no income and there's no income in the U.S. So, um, you know, it's definitely can be incremental. It's something to think about. And it's something that we see a lot of exposure, um, you know, when we do due diligence types engagements on these companies. So, Okay, that's a great insight. So, yeah, well, well, our last topic here today is transfer taxes on exit. And, and you know, for non-resident shareholders, um, you know, sometimes, you know, experiences there's transfer taxes in India. So maybe we talk a little bit about that. So, so I mean, what is the taxability of a non-resident party uh, when they sell, sell an India subsidiary? Uh, so Brandon, uh, direct transfer of shares of an Indian company, definitely no doubt that uh, this will trigger capital gains tax in India. Uh, now the nature of capital gains tax, whether it is long-term or a short-term, depends on the period of holding. Um, so where the shares are held for less than 24 months, it is regarded as a short-term capital asset. Whereas if the period of holding of the shares in the Indian company is greater than 24 months, it is regarded as a long-term capital asset. But overall direct transfer of shares of Indian company definitely has a capital gains tax trigger. Okay, and, and what about Indirect, those are direct transfers, you know, I, I sell you or I sell someone my, my India subsidiary directly, but oftentimes, right, if it's a subsidiary of the U.S. corporation and the U.S. corporation is sold, is what about the indirect transfers? Is that subject to tax? Oh, yeah. Uh, so as far as indirect transfer of shares is concerned, uh, if there is an indirect transfer of shares of an Indian company, uh, you know, uh, that could trigger a capital gains tax in India if if those shares derive their value substantially from the assets which are located in India. Uh, so just to give an example, if a foreign entity is deriving its value substantially from Indian assets, uh, uh, say for example, the value of those Indian assets are exceeding 100 million rupee, and it represents at least 50% of the total value of the asset which is owned by the foreign entity, then you know it, it will be deemed to be deriving its value substantially from, uh, from, from the Indian assets. And therefore, in those situations, the indirect transfer of the shares will also trigger a capital gains tax. Uh, having said this, these provisions don't apply if the investor is holding 
less than 5% voting power or interest and does not hold any right of management or control in the foreign entity which holds the Indian asset. Right, which normally the, those exceptions don't apply in this case. So, right. Right. so how do these taxes get collected? Um, you know, if it's the buyer who encountered, you know, is it the, you know, so, so I'm going to acquire, uh, you know, I'm the buyer of a U.S. company with an India subsidiary, um, you know, what should I be thinking about? Or if I'm the seller, you know, how, how do these taxes get collected? Is it- so normally uh, the buyer of the shares or the transferee company, irrespective of its residential status uh, in India, has to withhold tax on the capital gains income, which is earned by the non-resident seller or the transferor company. And it has to be deposited with the Indian government. So to this extent, the Indian income tax law has a extraterritorial reach and the non-compliance with these obligations may have a penal consequence for the buyer of, for the buyer of the shares because uh, the buyer company, if they fail to withhold taxes, then they could be treated as SSC in default in India. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've definitely experienced that. So, wow, that's a lot of data, a lot of information today. So, um, you know, I, I think that about wraps us up. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time um, early in my morning, late in your day. So um, thank you very much. Uh, for those of you in the audience, thank you for joining us. Um, we appreciate you taking the time to listen to our podcast. And um and we look forward to seeing you again. So thanks again, Sandeep. Um, this is Brandon Nett and, and Sandeep Junjuwala signing off for Anderson. Thank you very much.